Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the official Tennis.com podcast featuring professional coach and community leader, Kamal Murray. You are listening to the Tennis.com podcast. I am your host, Kamal Murray, and we are honored to have very special guests. Really the only African-American player I watched growing up was Mal Washington. I remember being at in Midtac, the ATA Regionals, right, at the RCA Center in Indianapolis. And the match which you and Todd Martin was on, on the big screen, because it was a rain delay. And I was, you were like the only sort of African-American that was sort of out there after Arthur Ashe. I mean, there were others, but that Wimbledon match that weekend, because, you know, obviously it was coincidentally the ATA Regionals. So it was every black tennis player from Detroit, Cleveland, Chicago, Wisconsin, was in Indianapolis. Mike Tyson was also there. It was a Tyson fight that weekend too. And, uh, you know, you were there doing your thing. I remember everybody's dreams were being crushed. You were down 5-1 in the fifth. And everybody started, oh man, you could see them start to bring out the booze. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden it was like, this five all. So when the rain stopped, everybody had to go back on the court. And then everybody started running out. Mal came back, Mal came back. We're like, nah, no way, man, it's 5-1. You know what I mean? And he came back and won. And that was, for me, that was the first time I saw somebody that looked like me really doing it on a court that I think, you know, I always tell players, I coach, there's nothing like a black person doing well at Wimbledon. U.S. Open's great, Aussie Open's great, French Open's cool, but like, you know, an African-American person at Wimbledon wearing all white on center court, that was like the highlight of my career. So I wanted to just say, man, I'm, I'm truly honored uh, first time I met you at US Open, I had to try to hold it together because, you know, we gave the, the good bro. I was like, oh, man, this is Mal. You know, you were sort of my idol growing up. And, you know, you're a Michigan dude, and I'm from Illinois. So uh, I well, want to thank you for coming on. Thank you. No, I, I appreciate that. Intro- that I appreciate that extended introduction. I, that's uh, that, that was very, very nice of you. I was wondering where you were going because you were talking about the, the RCA. And I was like, OK, I've, I've played that event there at the RCA in Indianapolis. But. But I was, uh, but then you went to the Todd Martin. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm good. I'm good that it goes there. Cause that, yeah. that was like the highlight. That was, that was a big highlight in, in my career, uh, certainly. So yeah, that honestly, it, it seems like a lifetime ago. It, it really does. Um, someone recently mentioned um, that it was the 25th anniversary. And here in, here in 20, uh, 2021, it's the 25th anniversary of uh, my youth foundation here in Jacksonville, Florida. And when they mentioned the 25th anniversary, I thought they were talking about my youth foundation. <laughs> and they were like, no, no, not the foundation. He's like Wimbledon. I was like, well, yeah, Wimbledon was coming up in a couple of weeks. It had, it had completely you know, skipped my mind that uh, it was actually the, the 25th anniversary of, of when I was in the, uh, in the finals of Wimbledon back in 1996. So. Time flies and uh, it, it feels like a lifetime ago. Man, well, well, let me tell you, because I've sat at some slams 
and I've seen the lead, and you're like, oh, it's not over till it's over, right? You be up a set in 3-0, and everybody, no, stay calm. And I've also been there, you're up a set and a break and seen it slip away. So tell me what that was like, because you don't really see a lot of folks being down 5-1 in the fifth and coming back on grass, where you really just need one good service game and you're out of there. Yeah, that, that was, here, here's how I've, I've always put it, Kamal. I've said throughout the course of a year, you probably lose a couple of matches that you should have won, and you probably win a couple of matches that maybe you should have lost. <laughs> down 5-1 down to, to a player like Todd Martin in the semifinals of Wimbledon in, in a big moment. Yeah, the, the likelihood of a comeback there is, is very small, but I, I remember just thinking, I want to see if I can make him serve out the match. You know, I, I did not want to lose the match by losing my own serve. Uh, the biggest, the biggest moment of it, it was the biggest moment of his career um, right. and my career when you have a chance to get into the finals of Wimbledon. Um, he had been in the, I guess, the finals of the '94 Aussie Open before. But you know, this is a dream when you're in the semifinals of Wimbledon. Two Michigan guys, two college guys, and. Um, you know, it's uh, we've joked about it a little bit uh, in the past because he had a big when I was number one in the country in college, my sophomore year, we played Michigan University of Michigan played Northwestern University and he beat me seven, six in the third. And, uh, I'm still to this day, I'm still a little upset about that. But when if he ever brings that up, I just bring up Wimbledon and then we're good. Oh, yeah. You can have that college stuff. Go ahead. You, you can have that match. I gave you that. And I was just setting you up for when I really needed it. Like, <laughs> yeah. At, at the time, though, um, you know, he had a really good team. We had a really good team. And, and I, that day, I actually played number two singles because I we felt like I was a little bit better matchup against Todd. And actually, it didn't prove to be that way. But uh, it's kind of funny that years later, we're in the semifinals of Wimbledon. And uh uh, it, yeah, I guess you could say it was it was maybe meant to be. It was that was just the way things uh, things aligned uh, for, for it to happen. But uh, certainly the pinnacle of my career, you know, winning that match, being in the finals of Wimbledon, have the opportunity to be one of the two guys standing on the final day of a major is uh, is pretty special. And to do it at Wimbledon, I think every player wants to win their home slam. And certainly for me, winning the U.S. Open would have been tremendous. But I remember, you know, watching the greats on TV at Wimbledon. Every great player in the history of tennis walked on to that tennis court. Not every great player has walked on to Arthur Ashe Stadium because it's a much newer stadium. But every right. great champion, every Hall of Famer has walked onto that court. And that's pretty special to walk out there on the final Sunday. Yeah, man. And, you know, you had that famous match with a streaker. Ran, ran that was the across. highlight of the match to, for some people. That was the I highlight know, right? of the match because it, uh, it it was just one of those things you you know you're, you're out there and you're you're so focused on what you're doing and then something like that happens and then <laughs> it it completely you know you, you start laughing. It's funny and and I, I've often wondered. I was like, did, did that kind of throw me off or something? Um, that might be an excuse, but right. uh, it's crossed my mind. I, I think the, the thing that threw me off more than anything was going up against uh, Richard Krychek in the final and him, you know, all but serving me off the court. Um, you know, he had beaten, what, the three-time defending champion Sampras on the way to, on the, way to the final. And uh, he was just better than me that day. And, but it was a, in that moment, someone's dream is going to come true. Uh, it, it really is. 
And uh, unfortunately for me, it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't my dream. But fortunately for him, uh, you know, he's the only Dutchman to to win a major. And uh, I, I get here's here's the funny thing about about that. I get a constant reminder of that match because about on the 5, 10, 15, 20, 25th anniversary, I always get calls and requests from Dutch journalists. Hey, can you come on the radio? Can you say it's Richard's birthday or it's the anniversary? Can you say something to Richard? And, and so I, I joked with them one time. I was like, you know, I, I understand we made the history books, but I'm forever tied to you and every major anniversary until someone, another Dutch player wins a major. So I'm for <laughs> any Dutch player to win a major so I can stop getting phone calls from, from uh, Dutch journalists about Richard. Well, man, I don't know if it's going to happen on the, on the men's side, but on the women's side, there's a couple of Dutch girls, but I, I can't name one that I think is like within range. But here's the, the, the tough thing about that is, is uh, and, I, and I just happened to be looking at, um, looking at the draw before we came on. Um, and I started thinking about all the great Swedes. When I was on tour, you had Mats V. Lander, you know, the, the two biggest were Mats V. Lander and Stefan Edberg. And right. in terms of the, the Swedish players out there right now, it's like, it's like, where are they? So every country is trying to produce great tennis players. And I, I think it's just evidence that the same challenge that Americans are having to produce Grand Slam champions, certainly on the men's side, we have it on the women's side, but to produce Grand Slam champions, it is one of the toughest things, uh, toughest things in the world to do. Yeah, I, but I think, you know, the difference is you got to start with the athlete first. And I think sometimes, like, it, it, particularly in this country, we try to make good tennis players into pros. And I think we've got to turn, we got to start well before we start looking at five and six and seven year old, what do the genetics look like? How do we then take those genetics and just put a racket in their hand? Because you can teach someone to hit forehand and backhand. We got some of the best coaches in America. You got Macy, Bolotel, I mean, you know, Saviano. You got some of these great wait, technicians. Wait, 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 wait. I'm on right now with one of you, the best you coaches. You too, brother. You, right. And me too. I'm going to throw that out there. Right, right. <laughs> right. You and me, but I can't, you know, save myself. Right. So you got all this expertise, but I don't think we start with the right clay. Right, because the right clay is watching the NBA, they're doing you know, they're doing football. And so we end up trying to make the kids who could afford to play from seven to 14. And then see if we can take that 14 year old and make him a pro. Sometimes they don't have the height, the quickness, the agility, some of the natural sort of skills you need to compete with. I mean, Krychek, right? If Krychek was American, he'd been on the, on the, on the Chicago Bulls. He would have played basketball. You know what I mean? Because that's what we do. We take our best athletes who six plus and put them on basketball court. There, there's a there's a lot of logic to to what you just said. It's attracting those young athletes to the sport of tennis. And really, what you're doing is you're attracting them away from some of those other sports, um, right. football and basketball. You know, I say here in Jacksonville, you know, with the kids at my foundation, football and basketball are king, and it's been king for 25 years. But we're introducing them to the sport of tennis. So it's taking all of those kids, putting the coaching behind them, the finances behind them, hoping they don't get that three, four, five year burnout where they're, yeah, you know, I want to do something else. Right. And if they have everything in place to be successful, they might be able, might be able to go pro after, after their junior year or uh, juniors, but there's a very good likelihood they're going to step into college like I did. 
Uh, and then after college, they get on tour. You can have everything in place and there's no guarantee you're going to be a top 100 player or a top 50 player or a top 25 player, let alone a Grand Slam champion. So it's very, very difficult. But I like what you said. I mean, you, you look at the, the game, the men's game and the women's game right, right now. Um, I will put the top men and women up against any other sport, athlete to athlete. I'll pick right. the tennis player in any up, up against any other sport right now. That's how good the athletes are in the game of tennis. So to your point, if you can start out with those quality athletes and put the support behind them, then you're just increasing your chances of, you know, creating those future successes. Yeah, it's funny you say that. So I dated, um, when I was finishing up college, I dated the general manager of the White Sox daughter for years. And they used to give me so much crap about tennis as a wimp sport, you know, it's in the country club. I said, let me tell you something. The greatest baseball player of all time was a fat dude. He couldn't play tennis. Like Babe Ruth at that time was the greatest baseball player of all time. And he was chunky. I was like, so you can't tell me that a tennis player isn't as athletic as a baseball player because you gotta, you ain't getting it thrown in your strike zone, right? You're hitting it on the move and gotta decide where the next ball is going to next. And you gotta run and change direction. I say, there's, there's no way that you can compare that. So I was, I was constantly defending and really my whole life, I was constantly defending my, existing in, my existence in tennis because my six best friends all play basketball. My brother was 6'9", played basketball for DePaul. Um, and then, you know, I, a lot of athletes, I'm like, oh, yeah, tennis, yeah, whatever. I'm like, nah, man, I was grew up having this conversation you and I are having. I, I fully understand uh, that debate that you would have with your friends. My upbringing was a little bit different. My dad is the one who taught me and my brothers and sisters how to play. And it was just a part of our life. There was no... I didn't play football, basketball, baseball. I didn't run track. I didn't play soccer or any other sport. Tennis is what we did. It was like school, sleep, eating, church every Sunday, and tennis seven days a week. I mean, that was just our routine. It was what it was. And so, now was he a career coach? Was he a career coach? Was your dad a career coach? My dad picked up the game of tennis in the 70s. He self taught, taught me and all of my other brothers and sisters how to play the game. And um brought me on the tour two sisters on the tour my brother on the tour so we've all played at a professional level four of the six of us have played at a professional level but he just loved the game um taught himself how to play and just and really just coached us um he didn't coach beyond that but he coached us on the tour when i was on the tour he was one of my coaches for a period of uh for a period of time and then i added another coach brian Gottfried, who's still a good friend of mine today but um that that's that was our uh, our experience. It was a very much a uh, a family thing. Those were my biggest com- some of my biggest competitors day to day were my siblings. Well, let me ask you. What's funny about your story is in tennis, you see a lot a lot of times the younger sibling ends up being the best, right? The parents kind of like the first one's a guinea pig. They're kind of like you know first generation tennis players navigating. Don't know what super nats is. Don't know which tournaments to play which coaches are good, which ones are like streetcar vendors selling you some crap. Uh, but your family was reversed. How, how did yours end up where you got the furthest and those who watched behind you sort of fell in the shadow a little bit? Well, it, it, it's kind of interesting because my older sister, Makila, um, who lives uh, outside of Chicago, um, oh. she was the first player who actually went out on tour 
And she got up to you know about 80 in the world, something like that. But this was back in the 80s. It was very little money. You know, she can Wimbledon's going on now. She competed, uh, competed in the main draw at Wimbledon. But then her career ended a couple years later when she was about 20, 21 years old. And then I came through and went the college route. But um, I think I took some inspiration from her. But but we fed off of each other. We right. uh, we really did, and we fed off of each other as a family. And then. As I went through my junior years, the guys that I grew up playing junior tennis with, that was a bit of an inspiration for me. For example, I was a little bit older than Pete Sampras, Andre Agassi, Michael Chang, Jim, Jim Courier. I was a little bit older than those guys, and they all went pro. I'm going to college, and they went pro. I competed against those guys and beat some of those guys in juniors. So in my head, I'm thinking, well, that, that's where I need to get. I can get there because... I just beat that guy, so that was a that was a part of uh, my inspiration. But but why did why did I excel um, to a higher level than my other siblings? It, it's it's so hard to say. But my little sister uh, Mashona, who retired, um, I don't know, maybe not quite a decade ago, she got up to fifty in the world. Um, so that's no that's nothing to sneeze about. I mean that is right. <laughs> that too is uh, is world class. And then my brother, uh, my brother Mashishka, he. He played on tour when I was on tour and, and we actually traveled together a good bit, played a little bit of doubles. And uh, I feel like his ranking topped out right around uh, 250, something like that. So we were, we were all out on the tour, um, kind of pushing, uh, you know, pushing each other as a, uh, as a family at some point. And like we were talking earlier, it's so hard to, so hard to put money to, a, to an issue and say, oh, this is gonna be the success. You know, some right. of it's good fortune. I think some of it's uh, some of it's uh, a God given. You know, I, I'm one who believes we all have a you know all have a destiny and things we're supposed to supposed to be doing in our life. And you know, fortunately for me, I was able to do it uh, on the ATP tour for ten years. Now, how did you? Because you know, we all know you grew up with Curry. Your Agassi had wins over juniors. How did you make the decision to go to college where they sort of went straight to tour? <laughs> there was no other option. No, 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 I, I, I have never um, doubted that college for me was the absolute best decision. It was the single greatest best decision that I made in my, uh, in my amateur career was to go to the University of Michigan. Um, my game wasn't ready, even though I was competing at that level and, and I had beaten, I'd beaten, I kind of remember beating Michael Chang in, in, um, in his last year or our last year of 18s. And then he goes on literally like a year later and wins Roland Garros. I'm like, right. what in the world? Right. And you know, and I'm in college, or I'm 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 like just out of my first year of college, and I'm on a you know playing a satellite in, in the south of um, in the southern states and here in the U.S. And he's winning Roland Garros. Um, they, you know, so he you know, that 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 was an inspiration inspiration for me. Um, going out, I, I think going out on tour was a was a dream of mine. But you don't actually know if it, if and when it's going to happen. I go to college. The best decision I made, and I made a big jump from the day I entered college to the end of my end of my first year, and then mm -hmm. I made a bigger jump to the end of my uh, sophomore year, and finished number one in the country. And then that summer after my sophomore year, I played a bunch of tournaments, played a satellite. I won a fifty thousand dollar challenger that summer. So there were markers that were out that, that said, okay, maybe now is the time uh, to, to move on to the pros. My, my college coach, Brian Eisner, actually said, 
sat me down. We had a you know conversation. He's like, Mal, uh, you know, I, if I thought you were ready to go pro, I'd tell you. <laughs> and uh, and uh, he, he said I wasn't ready to go pro. Right. And um, I made the decision to uh, turn pro right after he said that. Right. right. <laughs> and fortunately, it's uh, it, fortunately for me, it was the right decision. And, you know, I went on and had a you know, real nice career. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Now, what do you attribute your progress to in college? Because I always tell parents when they say, oh, you know, my kids are gonna go play the tour. And I know that they've historically been a little bit cash strapped and probably underplayed, right? So when you get to college, I always tell people, you get 20 hours a week with players that of like skill level or better if you're a freshman, right? With a coach who's probably been a coach there 10 to 15 years, maybe seen a player or two go pro. And I feel like that allows a lot of you know, 18, probably not ready, needs to go get some free food, some free athletic training, some coaching, some hitting partners. Do you think your sort of progress was attributed to now having five or six guys that you practice with 20 hours a week uh, Um, versus at home having to play with your siblings? Here was the interesting thing about going to college. When I got to college, I was surprised at how little tennis and off-court training we did because Mm -hmm. I did so much more um, when I was in high school. There, there were years in high school where I was practicing for two hours prior to school, two hours after school, and that doesn't include the off-court training I was doing. When I get to college, there's one practice, okay? Right. One, one practice a day. So, um, I mean, I, I remember there were guys where I would pull aside and we would just do it on our own. I mean, practice would finish, whatever it was, two, two and a half hours, and I just say, hey, you want to stay after? And we'd stay another hour, an hour and a half. That happened over and over every single week for the two years I was at uh, the University of Michigan. So I think that was a, a big part of me, uh, of me making that jump. But then also the desire to make that jump to the next level was there. I mean, I was highly motivated. I, I certainly had my, um, my share of screw-ups when, when I was in college. And, and I think I mentioned it earlier. I, I wasn't ready to turn pro and financially that would have been a significant burden on my, uh, on my family. I wasn't in a position where I was going to sign these big contracts straight out of straight out right. of junior tennis. It just was not there. So that was another reason why I chose to go to college, but pro what, what it wasn't even an option, but um, I was highly motivated to get to the next level. And just from my upbringing with my dad, he, he was the type now, I don't necessarily recommend this, and I don't know that any any psychologist or sports scientist or anyone would recommend this. But we we specialized early. We, we were playing tennis. We played it every single day, and we just went hard. We we really did. And mm-hmm. there were I, I think some of my siblings at times were getting burned out. And I think his philosophy was, well, if you're burned out, let's uh you know let's cut practice maybe thirty minutes, <laughs> and and hey, let's come back tomorrow. And just and just get after it again. But that work ethic is what pushed me through college and pushed me on the tour. I never had any issues with working my tail off when I was on the tour. 
And you can talk to you know any of my coaches or any people I've worked with. They'll be like, "Oh yeah, Mal, he he put in the, put in the time." And so that mm. that was my that was my what's the term? competitive advantage that I had over a lot of guys. Mm. See, when I was in Florida, I used to have to tell my coach, I said, "You know, I'm I'm studying finance, which means I can add." And we are now at hour 21, and I know the limit is 20. Right. I'm like, so come on, man. You like, you're trying to kill us. We got to study. We want to have a social life, you know? So I, I definitely played more in college versus, you know, in my neighborhood, you, you know, you don't have that many people to play with. You got to drive far. You can't play in some of the groups. Some of the other kids are playing. So I think that, you know, I thought I was just okay as a junior. And then in college, I started to be a lot better, right? 20 hours a week. You get that free try. I never had a personal trainer as a kid. Uh, and I felt that college was, had I had, the access to the court time in, that I had in college earlier, I might be able to, you know, make a serve or two. But I was sort of deprived as a junior just because I was the first and only person in my family ever played tennis. I mean, my mom, to this day, never seen me hit a tennis ball. Wow. She just drive, drop you off. Here's a check to pay for your lesson. Find a ride home. I got to go pick up your sister. I mean, it was literally so hands off which is probably why I was so, I'm still in the game. I'm still enthusiastic about the game. I wasn't burnt out. Didn't have a ton of pressure. Probably could have used a, a little bit of a kick in the ass. You know what I mean? But, you know, never forgot it. But when I actually got to Florida is when I discovered, well, heard about your father. So your father and Ernie Peterson are famous for fighting to create opportunities for Blacks. And there was a story that my coach told me uh, he said, you know, Mal Washington's dad and Ernie Peterson used to write a letter to the USTA every single day to try to create more opportunities. He was just like a pioneer, right? And I think it's helped on the women's side to like, you know, keep folks on their toes, keep, you know, keep, keep diversity at the forefront. Not like, oh, it's important, then it goes away and it comes back. But I would say your dad is famous for that. A lot of people don't know that. No, he is. Uh, he is. He was a. How, how would you put it? He was a, a thorn in people's side um, at the USTA for for many many years. But you know, I, I I've told people this before. I said, look look where he came came from. He was born in 1939 in Mississippi. He grew up in the 40s and 50s in the Deep South. Eventually went to Illinois, uh, then New York, then uh, landed in Michigan. So in his young, you know, in the first whatever, however many years of his life, in his decades in Mississippi, there was a lot of racial issues that he was subjected to and he had to deal with. Whether it was in sports, whether it was in education, whether it was in business, employment, it was there. And I'm not telling you anything that, you know, America doesn't know. I mean, it was there. So when we started playing in tennis, you know, in the 1970s, I think you would be naive if you thought there weren't racial issues going on within, within the sport of tennis. So when he thought there were injustices or racial issues going on, he felt the need, um, you know, he was very educated and, you know, a, a guy with an undergrad and a master's degree, and he was very well-spoken and well-written and right. very educated. And he was willing to call people out where he saw uh, where he saw injustices. And, you know, the reality is, is there were, there were times where, um, and we, we can stay on this or not, but there were, there were times where you would see a draw, a junior draw, 
And there would be, you know, of course, 32 draw predominantly of, of the players are white players. And there'd maybe be, you know, three black players, you know, in the draw. And it was just uncanny at times, like how two of the three play each other. each other in the first <laughs> round. And then if you won, you might play the third player in the second round. Right. It was, I was like, okay, is that just coincidence? Or is, is there just something else going on? And I recall yeah. there were times um, in, the, in the 1980s when we were playing in certain Southern states where, you know, oftentimes junior tournaments are played at multiple sites, multiple clubs or country clubs around the city. There were literally clubs where if you were a person of color, you were not going to play there. Right. Okay, you had to go play at this other site, or maybe it was yeah. a public site. You weren't going to play at the club. I mean, these were yeah. real issues. So if if my dad felt there were those issues, or there were issues in how wild cards were distributed, or whatever the issue, he was going to voice that opinion and voice it uh, voice it very strongly. And it, and if you think about it, you know, look at the arc of history. Change often happens when people are willing to get outside of their comfort zone and make a noise and and you will take you'll take criticism for it oh yeah you know that person he's kind of crazy he's always loud but you know what that that loudest person oftentimes is the one who is able to spark and produce that that change that is always needed but that that's been that will continue to happen you know change in, in our country needs to needs to continue to happen and i think it will and we just continue to need voices to continue to stamp out um, injustices of all kinds, um, whether it's against people of, of color or women or minorities or any group of people. The you know, injustices need to be uh, stamped out. And uh, unfortunately, um, that'll always be the case because uh, people are human, people are imperfect, and there will always be groups of people who seemingly don't have a problem with trying to put another group under their thumb yeah. um, and trying to cut, you know, cut the legs out from under a group of people. That will always be the case, but um, who's going to be uh, the biggest advocate there, or there has to be advocates in, uh, in any group of people if we, if we're going to see change. And I, and what impressed me was the tenacity because back in the day, you weren't sending an email, you were writing the letter, putting it in an envelope, well, I, read, I read my share of those those letters when I was a yeah, kid. Yeah, right. And and sticking it and mailing it, you know. So so that effort, you know. And realistically, I think I think he always knew that it probably wouldn't impact his kids, but it impact the kids now. Like I think now, you know, those letters, him and Ernie, what they did, you know, the, the women, at least the women on tour, are benefiting from sort of that conversation now to a great degree, right? Where there's always a concentration on diversity. You know, it, it puts, oftentimes it puts people in an uncomfortable position because it causes you to acknowledge issues and oftentimes acknowledge issues that either you knew were there and you ignored and you just wanted to sweep under the rug or you knew were there and you wanted to pretend that they weren't there. I mean, we, we see that here in 2021 um, where there are injustices and, and it's, it's always easier to just look the other way unless you're on the receiving end of that injustice. Okay, right. if you're on the receiving end of it, yeah, we, we need to say something about it. We need to address it. We need to get it on camera. We need to expose it to let people really understand some of the issues that go on in our country. And so I, I think that's 
That's one of the biggest things. And, and unfortunately, we live in an age uh, with the internet and with technology, there is so much information out there that happens every single day that you can just put on your camera phone and you can, you can blast it out on your social media. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened. You know, but the videos that we see come out, this isn't, these things just haven't started happening, you know, since you know, the advent of the camera phone. This has been going on for generations. Just so many people didn't see it or did, didn't acknowledge it. Um, you know, I, one of the things I, I hear sometimes that pe people say, well, why, why can't we all just get along? And I'm like, geez, I, I'd, I'd love to get along, but you know, look at X, Y, Z that, that is happening. It's tough to get along when you're subjected to this. And right. so exposing it, I think is important. Yeah, I always uh, re reflect on experiences when you go, you still sort of see it at the slams. Uh, and I, it, it talks about the diversity that we need, even at the slams in terms of hiring and security. Because many slams I watch, like a white coach walk in front of me, don't get the credential checked. I get my credential checked every 10 feet. I'm like, dude, like last year, I was like in the stands on the last day of this tournament. I mean, if there's any one black dude that you need to recognize, it's probably me this year, because last year I was like one of the last few in the whole stadium. So um, I think it's still sort of there, right? When we talk about the tennis environment, right? Uh, from a staffing standpoint, uh, I remember two years ago, we were at uh, Sticks and Sushi. You know, you go Bob on the Hill in the village. It was me, Monfils, Francis, Zach, and Abdul, and maybe Jermaine. So we're walking up the hill and there was a, a white woman walking towards us. Right now, this is the village during Wimbledon. And, you know, you're like trying, you know, everybody knows all the players are there. Everybody's getting autographed on the street, taking a picture, blah, 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 blah. And we see this woman like cross the street. And in my mind, I was thinking, we're probably more afraid of you than you are of us. Because, you know, they were probably afraid you're going to stop and ask for an autograph or whatever. But I was, I would just say it's still sort of there, even in the tennis environment, um, where there's still like a little bit of hesitation and sort of subtleties. Yeah. You know, you, you see things like that and there's, some people are very sensitive to issues like that. And, and sometimes I say, you know, it's like their, their antenna are up and they're almost looking for things. And, and I'm a little bit the opposite um, because I feel comfortable and confident in, in who I am. And if I'm walking towards you and you wanna cross the street, I honestly could not care less. And I don't wanna spend and waste mental energy on trying to figure out why you crossed the street and if it was racially motivated. Right. Because if it, if it was racially motivated, guess what? That's your problem. That's, right. that's your issue. Um, I don't want to waste my mental energy kind of thinking about that. I mean, I have, my eyes are wide open when I'm walking through my day. And yes, are, th are there going to be issues that could be racially motivated? Um, absolutely. Have there been times where I've made the decision in the moment to address it because I think it needed? Sure, there have been times. And, there, and there's other times where it could go either way. I, I don't know what's in their mind and I'm not gonna try to, try to figure it out. I just, I think the approach I take is on a daily basis, I'm just gonna make sure I'm doing what I need to do, when I need to do it, how I need to do it, and making sure I'm doing it legally. Right. And that way I am setting myself up for getting home safely and getting, getting through my day. Um, 
I don't know what's going on in other people's lives and, and, that, and that's their issue. I mean, if they want to have an issue with me, by all means, have an right. issue with me, call the police. I don't care. Right. I, I talk to police. You know what? When I see police officers, I go up, I shake their hand. Great to see you. What can I do for you? I, I'm not going to, I don't get caught up in, into that because I think there's more important issues to address that I can address than whether or not someone has an issue with me being in their restaurant or being in, in their store. Um, I mean, I, I remember a situation where um, I just thought it was interesting that a security guard was, you know, kind of following me in a store. And I was like, okay, well, you know what, maybe that's his job and maybe he follows every single person. And so <laughs> for me, instead of getting pissed off, I actually went up to that security guard, engaged him in a conversation. Okay. And then I went on my shopping and he kind of walked away, diffused the situation, nothing ever happened. Okay. Of course, there are some people who are a little bit more sensitive who are going to take issue with, with that security guard. But again, it goes back to that idea that I'm comfortable in who I am and what I'm doing. And I know what I'm doing is, uh, you know, is appropriate. So it, it diffuses a lot of situations when I take it, take it that approach. Yeah, man. I think that's a, that's a great way to look at it because not, not everyone is willing to look at it that way or wants to look at it that way and might say, oh, you know, Mal's being a little naive there. And that's that's OK, too. But uh, that has served me pretty well for 52 years. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a break. You're going to listen to the Tennis.com podcast with one of my childhood idols, Mal Washington. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, Mal, we, we talked about sort of, uh, you know, race a little bit. And I think, you know, back when last year, when all the sort of tensions that kind of like spurred up, you know, I, I felt that us as Black people who had been in like, you know, this space, like tennis is predominantly a white space, um, needed to give, um, you know, white people a safe place to make a mistake, right? I think there was a, there was a time where everyone starts like, walk on eggshells. They didn't know whether they call you African-American or black or whatever it was. And I feel like at times we need to say, you know what? I, I often find myself saying, it's all right. I grew up playing tennis. You can say whatever you want to say. It's not going to bother me, right? In terms of just having the dialogue and giving them a safe place to sort of speak freely, not be afraid to say something offensive because it's just, you know, we're naive or whatever. Uh, and I felt like, you know, going forward, if you do have, you know, white friends that are legitimately, you know, white, love you to death, want to understand, feel, you know, want to feel comfortable coming to you because they, you give them that safe place. I feel like that sort of needs to happen more now, right? Where there, there's a two-way sort of education. There's a, it's kind of interesting because after the death of George Floyd, and I would call it a murder of George Floyd, um, there was a, and, and a, a significant amount of march, millions of people in America and throughout the world marching and in protest. And I got a lot of phone calls from uh, friends that I'm in contact with, often people I haven't talked to in years, just genuinely reaching out and concerned, some former players, some non-players, hey Mal, how are you? You know, what's going on? Hope you're doing good, you know, 
and we, we'd have a, you know, just a genuine conversation. And I even, you know, I was on my share of uh, Zoom calls with, with corporations. Hey, we want to get your perspective on, on kind, of, kind of what's going on. And my, my fear was that eventually it would, it would kind of die down. And to a degree, I believe it has. I haven't gotten a, I haven't gotten a phone call from anyone regarding these issues in months. Right. Okay, so certainly not in yeah, certainly not in 2021. Right, so right, it's, right. it's been a long time. And there there were times where where I was on corporate phone calls with you know staff members and board members from 10 people to you know 80 people, and we're talking about racial justice. And it seemed to be very a very popular thing for people to you know, wanna, within their company, you know, we're gonna get a group of people together and we're gonna see how we can do better. And we're gonna institute X, Y, Z into, into, our, into our culture. And on paper, it sounds good. In these conversations, it sounded good. But one of the things I tried to drive home as much as I could is don't let this just be, you know, you're putting out a statement because everyone's putting out a statement on social justice. If the, the mark of whether or not you've made improvement is, what are you doing in 2021? What are you doing in 2025? How is the things you said you were going to implement, how is it impacting you in 2030? To me, that's the real mark of, of did you make difference? Not, not just putting out a statement and then saying, okay, we're gonna start implementing this because it's so easy to just kind of revert back to the way things used to be. And then you, you look back at your organization in 18 months, 24 months, and really nothing has changed. You're kind of back to where you were in 2020 before George Floyd, okay? And so I would like to think that more individuals and more people are really more aware of the things that are going on and more aware of the culture that uh, that's in their companies and they're genuinely trying to uh, trying to do better and trying to improve, but it's not just racial issues. It's it's gender issues within within companies. So I think there's always there will forever be room to improve if you're willing to look at yourself or your company, your organization with a with a constructive critical eye and saying, okay, can can we make change? Um, if you do that. At least you're setting yourself up for success to, to make some positive change. Doesn't always happen, but um, that that's where uh, change can happen. But but it also produced me, Kamal. I'll say this is it caused me to reach out to some of my Jewish friends with all of the you know so much more anti-Semitic behavior going on in our country. Mm -hmm. I actually reached out and had conversations with some of my Jewish friends the same way people were reaching out to me. I'm like, hey. How is how is this affecting you? Do you notice it? Do you see it? And those conversations, I took it upon myself as opposed to saying, okay, people, you need to do this for diversity. I, I looked in the mirror and it's like, okay, how can I help with the problem? How what can I do to educate myself a little bit more on some of the issues that I may not even be aware of? You know, mm -hmm. I, I have. I don't know what's going on. Um, I'm not aware of what's going on in the transgender community and the violence that they're facing. I'm not aware of what goes on, you know, to a large degree within the Jewish community. I'm not Jewish, so it doesn't, it impacts me a little bit differently. Um, or 
you know, any, any issue in a community, the homeless, the, the homeless community, you know, a lot of times if it's, it's in every community, but if it's out of sight, oh no, you know, it's, it's not that big of a deal. You know, I, I don't think that's a big problem right now. No, it's the problem is there. You just don't see it. And so I've tried to keep my eyes open a little bit more um, and educate myself. Yeah, you know, one of the bonds that I think uh, the Jewish community, the black community share is, you know, historically we weren't allowed to join tennis clubs. And I think the Jewish community just um, had more wealth than we had in the past. So they were able to form Jewish only clubs, right? Like York Rackets in Toronto and you have Hillcrest in LA. Um, so they were able to sort of, you know, find we'll create our own clubs, right? And then we obviously didn't have the resources nor sort of the, the the unity to do that in our own community, right? We historically have been just so divided. But I think that's sort of sad. But you know, Diego Schwartzman's the only Jewish player on tour. I didn't realize that I was commentating his match uh last fall and didn't realize that he was the only Jewish player on the men's tour. Hmm. Um well, you know, now that you mentioned it, you know, I I uh, I'm struggling naming mother. I mean there were a group of uh guys on the tour, Israelis on the tour, when I was there, Gilad Bloom, Amos Mansdorf, and I'm probably missing missing a couple of others, um, Brad Gilbert, um, Aaron Krikstein. Um, yeah. You know, so there were there were Jewish players on the tour, but that, that's interesting that Diego is, uh, yeah. is that lone. Yeah. Hmm, interesting. So you're one of those guys, like when you looked at, when I looked at you play, one of the things I noticed is I never saw you just sort of playing the same way uh, in a losing battle. I always saw you hit and come in, slice wide, forehand line. Oh, you always saw you trying to figure out, trying to figure it out and come up with something different. And that was always one of the, the cerebral things that stuck out. Uh, as sometimes you don't see with players. Sometimes you see players go out there with a game plan, it's not working, it's not my fault. You told me to do things wrong. I got no plan B, I got no plan C. Um, but I think, you know, that sort of speaks to the sort of what you're doing now is just, you know, I don't know if it comes from your dad, but you're always like mentally present and cerebral and thinking. Um, and you know, now with your real estate, uh, it, it's just sort of like par for the course, you know, your growth and continue to move forward. I, I would, to, to that, I would say, um, I would attribute a lot of that certainly to my parents, but I would attribute the, uh, a lot of that to, uh, age and maturity because, from uh, certainly through my teenage years and let's say, you know, the first decade, you know, the, the decade of my 20s, I often say there was not a lot of higher level thinking going on in my head. Um, <laughs> I, I was focused on one thing and I was like, how can I become a better, better tennis player? I wasn't thinking about, you know, how do I really think about it? Okay, how do I keep my finances? How do I you know, set myself up. No, it was, there was not a lot of higher, higher level thinking. It was like, okay, how much prize money did I make? And uh, okay, how much are we going to spend tonight that now that my tournament is over? Okay, right. let's go have some fun. Okay, so <laughs> there, was, there was definitely my, my, share of, uh, my share of that. But I, I do agree with you when I was on the court, um, I, I kind of looked at it, looking back on it, I, I say, it, it's like solving a problem. And in life, there is a solution to every problem, I believe. It's, can you find it? It may not be the solution you want, but, but can you find it and can you get in a better place? And on the tennis court, you're, you know what you wanna do and it may not be working and you're trying to find a solution that works. 
you know, yeah, maybe you change up your game. Maybe you go to the towel a little bit more to disrupt your, you know, your opponent's rhythm a little bit. You're trying to solve, solve a problem. And, you know, when I was playing at my best, you, you, you know, you're solving those problems. Certainly you're just hitting a good tennis ball, but then right. you're also solving those problems because you're not always on a high during a match. There are highs and lows during a match, but that was, to me, that was, Kamal, that was the fun thing about tennis. It's one-on-one. -on -one. It's, it's you against him and you're, you're trying to reach the same thing and you're each trying to figure it out. And, and I look back at the, the players who, who gave me um, the, the biggest challenges in my career. I knew what I wanted to do and mm -hmm. I knew what they were going to do, but they could get at my weaknesses before I could get at theirs. And they were just <laughs> a little bit better. Like, and that's, that, that's one of the things, that's one of the things I hated, hated about tennis is there are times you walk out there and you, you kind of realize if I play my best and they play their best, yeah, they, they're going to win. There's a, good, there's, there's a good chance they're going to win, but, right. but it's not necessarily about playing their best. It's like, okay, can I play at a high level to the right moments? And then can my, can I be disruptive? In their games, you know, there, there were certain tactics and little, little uh, squirrely things you could do to kind of get under a player's skin. And you know, some players you were trying to get them pissed off because you know if you could, you know, get them over the edge and maybe breaking a racket, you know, right, you, right. you know, you got under their skin and, mm -hmm. and you're right there. Mm -hmm. So you're you're trying to. That was the fun thing about it. You're always trying to figure it out. How can I get that little edge and um, get get over the top and get to the finish line of the match? Well, now players call it being locked in. Right. Mm -hmm. And I always tell people like, you know, to, to win a grand slam or even get to the final, you got to get everything like almost perfect for like 14 days in a row. Can't have food poisoning. You got to get the right draw, the right set of matchups. Got to have a nice hotel. Right. Or Airbnb or staying at a at a room in Wimbledon Village that actually has air conditioning because a lot of them don't have air conditioning. Um, and, you know, what was special about that week for you? Because I look back at you know, coaching some players to like a U.S. Open run or a French Open final. And I looked like, wow, a lot of things went right. We found a great restaurant with the perfect table in the back, right? Um, we got to stick with the routine. Got to stick with the routine, right? Um, we got a great hotel that was had a little extra room, right? So you were more comfortable. Um, tournament director liked us. So we got to play where we wanted. First match, last match, somewhere in between. Right, one of court numbers, you know, whatever court it is. What what was special about that run? Because, you know, that was your last, like, sort of Grand Slam final, right? So if you look back on it, was <laughs> that, that was my first and my last. First and last, right? So something was special about those two weeks. You want you want, you want to hear what, something crazy? It was actually my last Wimbledon as well. I never played Wimbledon again after that. I had a sur had knee surgery in '97 the year after my final, and I had another knee surgery in 98. So it kind of stunk that I never played Wimbledon again, but it's hard to, it's hard to pinpoint um, exactly what it is, Kamal, because you're, my, my brother was there with me and we, we got into a routine. We were practicing together. We, you know, same restaurant for dinner, pasta and pizza for dinner. And uh, <laughs> I had this little, uh, this bacon, egg and cheese sandwich every day for breakfast, same restaurant, trying to do it at the same time, wanting to warm up on the same court, that, that whole thing. But as a, as a tennis player, you're trying to figure out that, that perfect solution that causes you to play 
to the to the top of your potential, um, which is why I, I have so much appreciation for those players who who can succeed. And when you were working with Sloane Stephens and she wins the U.S. Open, and I'm looking at her game and I'm like, okay, she's playing here. If she's able to sustain that level consistently over the next two, three years, four years, five years, how many majors is she going to? Because I, I was watching her match and I was just like, okay. Her something happened and her game elevated. But I also admire when I see that out of Serena or Rafa or Roger or Djokovic, their their best level or their high level is better better than or even their average level is better than a lot of players out there. Mm -hmm. Okay, at my best level, I could compete with the you know the top ten guys, but my average level wasn't nearly as good as their average level. And so you're always, as an athlete, you're always trying to figure that out. And, mm -hmm. and it, it's, it's almost impossible to be, it is impossible to figure it out. I guess Roger's figured it out. Serena's figured right. it out. Yeah, um, he's, he he got to rent the top two floors at the crown, right? And bring all the kids and then he's, he's got to like have everything set up tight to perform. I think, I, I think uh, on some level though, you just have to have the, the sheer ability, okay? Mm -hmm. I, I had a lot of ability, no question, but no one is looking at my career and looking at the 1990s and saying, oh yeah, the best forehand on the tour was Mal, or the best serve, serve was Sampras, <laughs> forehand might've been Sampras, backhand might've been Agassi, forehand might've been Courier, volleys, you know. So I was a really good player, but I didn't have that thing that stood out that was going to be the best in the world. I was gonna put me deep into a major every single, every single time. But right. some of those players have figured it out. And th those players all have routines. They have their restaurants they want to go to. You know, mm -hmm. they, you know, I want to, I'm hitting for 30 minutes and I'm not doing anything more. They have their routines. But uh, I, I've always admired those players who can figure, who have that formula, who have the ability and then have that formula for success because I desperately wanted it. And I mean, make, make no mistake, I had a, I had a nice career, but my what I wanted to achieve in my head wasn't what I actually achieved on paper. Yeah, I, I wanted a couple of more wins. Right, right. And you see it now on tour. You see men and women changing up the environment, trying to find like that that right mix. Like, oh, this person, I'm gonna bring him because he keeps the mood light. I'm gonna bring my mom because I go to dinner with her if I get tired of my coach. Right. Uh, I'm bringing my significant other. You know, all right. types of things. I didn't. I didn't realize it as much then and I realized it towards the end of my career post knee surgeries where early in my career I was focused on the physical part of the game I just have to play enough hours I have to hit enough balls and now mm. I'm ready well mm. post knee surgeries I I was practicing 25 percent of what I normally could just to be ready for the tournament just mm. so my knee I felt like my knee could survive and I had to trick myself. I had to convince myself and tell me, oh yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. I don't need any more practice. And so my, I think my mental approach was different and better towards the end of my career. And what I learned is tennis and, and, and life really, and success is so mental. Um, mm -hmm. There's so many players out there. And I, I often talk about my youth foundation. I look at the kids in my foundation, the potential for their success is immense, but do they believe it? Right. You know, 
Um, do they hear it? Do they hear about it at home? Do they hear about it amongst their friends? Or do they hear and see a lot of negativity that really is a, sometimes I say a guardrail on their mind, okay? And we try to, you know, kind of open up and expand their mind into what is possible. So, you know, on the tennis court, later in my career, I realized, man, that tennis is so mental. You know, your, your mental approach when you walk out onto the court is so, so important. And you see, you see that now in a lot of sports now where the physical starts to diminish and then your age, your experience, your mental sort of just takes you and you have a better career later because you, you fully understand like, I'm just saying about hitting the ball. You know, I'm, I'm watching, um, to, to your point exactly, I'm watching um, the Phoenix Suns, Chris Paul, 32 points last night at 36 years old. He's only the third player to have 30 plus points in an NBA final at 36 or older. You know, I yeah. think uh, I think they said it was Kareem might have been one and I, f I forget the other. But I'm thinking mm -hmm. 36 years old and he's lighted it up in the NBA finals. How much of that is mental? I guarantee you he doesn't do near the amount of physical training that right. he did when he was younger. But right. now he's just so much smarter in his approach. And if I had been smarter in uh, maybe in my approach, then then, of course, you ask yourself, what if what if I had done this? Right. What if I had taken this approach? You know, what could I have accomplished? But, you know, with, with you know, I, I'm, I certainly keep things in perspective. I mean, there's a lot of people would have liked to have the career I had. I um, mean, no matter where you your career ends up, you always ask, what if, if I could have done this, if right. I could have won that match? I mean, I'd say there's probably um, one, two, <laughs> three matches, three matches in my career uh, that I lost that would have been a, I would have had a completely different career. Certainly Wimbledon is, is, uh, is, is the big one. That's, that's a completely different conversation and career if you right. win that one match. I would say career changing matches, yeah. right? Either mm -hmm. way, it's like, you can think back on a couple of Let me say, so speaking to that, who was a player that you just always had your number, right? So, you know, you, 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 you probably beat a lot of people that they beat, but when you played them, they just always whip your ass. Oh, oh, Sampras. All right. <laughs> but but, but he, he whipped up on everyone. Right, right, right. Um, so a minute ago, I mentioned, you know, one of the matches in, um, you know, that would have been a game changer. Sampras beat in 1993. He beats me in the final of, of the Lipton Championships down in Miami. It was called the Lipton back then. Um, I think it was called the Lipton back then. But yeah. uh, that, that, you know, that is a huge event. You know, back then it was like the fifth major. Okay. I win that one, different career. He also beat me a couple of times in uh in majors you know that would have put me into either deeper into the second week of a major but uh, it was funny i was i was talking to a group of kids one time and uh they, they asked me that question who was your toughest opponent and i was like probably sampras i mean i was zero and six to get zero and six against him <laughs> and then another kid raises you know chimes up i was like yeah and he's like i, I looked it up you're actually zero and seven against him all right <laughs> I was like, Those kids with the internet. I, I was like, that kid, get, get him out of here. He, right. I, I don't need to hear that. Let's just go with zero and six. You don't need to tell me that. But um, he was, he was one of those players where I knew what I wanted to do. He, I knew his weaknesses. He knew mine. He, he could get to mine sooner than I could, I could get to his. And that, that was the difference. But he, he was one of those all-time greats, of course. Oh yeah, he was one of those Rafa, Roger, where it's like, you know what? Nobody's going to send until they're done. Like we need them to be done and then we'll see who the next great champion was going to be. 
So we talked about it earlier. So when you got your first check, right? We always see, and one of the things I tell like my other athlete friends about tennis is tennis players make more money now than they ever have, but they actually have less time to spend it, right? You know, you got the NFL's got a really short season, long time to spend their money, right? In the off season. You got NBA. If you don't make it to the championship, you got four or five months to spend your money, right? And uh, and we and we spend our money. You know, all right, right. we spend our money, right? So what was the first sort of man? I had a good tournament. And I'm gonna go and just do something stupid. What was the yeah, first? I, I'm I'm like a, I, I might I might get back to that one, but the first my first tournament as a pro. I had just turned pro. It was this tournament in an ATP event in Orlando. Okay. And I, I was in the qualifying and I qualified. I kind of remember I beat, I beat Luke Jensen, maybe first or second round qualifying. And then I forget who I lost to in the first round. I lost first round. And my check was like $3,330. And I thought I had hit the mother load. I was All like, right. are you kidding me? Wait, I won two qualifying matches and they just sent, gave me a check for three thirty three hundred bucks. Now, mind you, I had just come out of college. I didn't have any money. Okay, right. I had zero money. So I thought, oh, and and then and then I got a wild card into the doubles, and then and and we lost first round. I was like, man, this is the most money I've ever seen. I was like, right. I played tennis for free, and right. they were and they were actually paying me to do it. But um, I don't know, I don't know. I, I remember. Uh, I don't know, I blew some money on a sound system in my Jeep back in the day. Um, <laughs> I did. You know, I, I go to this, this place here in Jacksonville and I spend a bunch of money on a sound system, had this big, this big old subwoofer in the back. I, I couldn't put my tennis bag back there, but I got, I got a big old subwoofer in there. And, uh, and you know, it, and it, it had this uh, little face plate that you could take off. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and then, and then the music that was, it had like a 10-disc changer and the music that was playing, it digitally showed who was paying. I, I thought I thought I was the man back then. In, in, my, uh, in my Jeep Grand Cherokee, I, th I thought that was the sweetest thing. I had that, there's a face-off. I had, had the face-off with a 10-disc changer in the trunk, two 12s in the trunk, it cost me about 1,300 bucks and I had paid 300 bucks for the car. <laughs> Literally, the only thing like, man, just... Let me just take my radio out. You, you can take yeah. the car. Just let me get my radio, my speakers. No, it's uh, it, it, it's funny how you know when your your perspective changed, and and this is this is where my, you know my parents you know really really helped me out. Is my parents were you know we grew up middle middle to lower income family. They grew up you know in right at the tail end of the Great Depression. Okay, so every single item in the house had value. You didn't throw anything away. So they taught me the value of money. So after I blew a little bit of money on a sound system in, you know, in the Jeep, plus I thought that was cool because Jeeps used to be in rap videos. Okay. Right. So I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to get a Jeep. So right. I had a Jeep and, um, and then, and then I got, I thought it was, I was cool. Cause I had a Jeep and a Lexus coupe. Okay. Oh, yeah. and, then, and then a few years later, um, when I started getting a little more, I don't know, financially interested um, you know, you, that whole idea of, of growing your wealth and building wealth and wealth and, and generational wealth. Um, that's where that whole idea of real estate for me kicked in, even while I was on, on the tour. I actually, I was actually taking real estate classes when I was on the tour. Um, but mm -hmm. that during the time where I was injured post-surgery, all I was doing was rehabbing my knee. I was sitting mm -hmm. in real estate classes as well. And that, that's where, you know, I had a, had a bit of a mindset shift. 
and, and loved it. And it's, it's actually, it's funny because yeah, I'm 52 and I have certainly a different perspective than I did, you know, 30 years ago. But, but one of the things I try to teach young people now is, is the value of money and the value of starting young and just, just understanding this is how you build wealth. I've done it. I can show you how to do it. But the younger you start, the, uh, the better it's going to be for you. And, uh, you know, certainly real estate is one of those great, great, you know, wealth builders throughout the 20th century. Well, young people are going to need to learn how to manage it now because now in college, they can own their brands and their likeness. They're going to be getting money in college. Yeah. And, and it can either be set them up for life or they can just trick it off and be the cool dude on campus who got a new deal. So I'm, I'm actually fearful for some of these kids, right? Um, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be the latter. They're going to, they're going to blow the money right. um, that, because that's what, that's what teenagers do. And that's what young twenties do. Um, but the, the ones who are savvy, the ones who are smart are going to, uh, who are, are going to in a very, in a, at a very young age in a small way are going to start setting themselves up financially. But I mean, how many young twenties are thinking about that? They're, they're thinking about, Hey, what are we doing tonight? And who are we going to hook up with? You know, right. Um, that, that's what they're thinking about. You know, I get a little older. I'm, I'm, you know, I've been married for 20 some years, 23 years and a couple of kids and my, my mindset is different, but you know, I look at, I look at our community and I look at the community of the kids that we're serving the community that we're in um, throughout America. There are so many families that I, I say spinning their wheels in soft sand. They're, they're working hard. They're trying to get after it, but you know, from January to December, they, they survived, they didn't thrive. You know, if you look at their accounts, man, it might even be negative for the year, but there's, mm. they're working. And so, you know, oftentimes I say, you know, we have to figure out ways to work smarter, um, not, not just harder. And for these young athletes who have the potential to now make money, um, some of them are gonna blow it. And, you know, when they're 30 years old, they're, they're gonna kick themselves. And then some of them who are a little bit more savvy uh, can set themselves up in a very, very good way, even if, even if they don't take that next step to the pros. Because there's, there's a lot of athletes who are, who are in college right now, or the majority of athletes, they don't take that next step to the pros. Right. There'll be some of them who do not take that step with the, right. but have the money, have the ability to make money in college, but still won't make that step. Yeah, maybe they're not good enough. Maybe they don't get drafted. Maybe they get injured. Right. Um, but, uh, the, the, the lack of maturity of college students is going to allow them to blow, blow money for sure. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Now, I had the opportunity to coach World Team Tennis last summer, and I was really impressed with the kid. Well, he's, he's a grown man now. He's got more gray hair than I do. Rajiv Ram. And mm -hmm. Rajiv shared with me that every time he had – he's a doubles player primarily, right? So he's splitting the check, right? Whatever they win, he got to cut it in half. Um, but he told me how every time he had a big result, he went and bought a property. And I, to Love me, it. that was just so impressive because he heard me on the phone. 
I was, you know, on the phone call back in Chicago trying to work on a deal for myself. And he's like, oh, you, you do real estate? And I do real estate. I was like, okay, well, what do you do? And he said, every time I have a good result, I go and buy a new property and I rent them out and my wife wow. manages them and all that. I was like, now that is, that is like impressive. And hopefully he starts to encourage some of his others, uh, especially doubles players, right? Where every check they got, you know, they got to split it. Um, to sort of do the same and start to set themselves up. Because tennis, some careers are long, but a lot are short, right? And a, a lot, lot of them are short. And, and oftentimes your, your tennis career, or your sporting career, that is where, you know, I, I often talk about active income and passive income. And tennis, your career, your, your sporting career is where you are likely going to make the most active income. Okay, um, whether it's whether you're LeBron or you know you're Rajiv or anywhere in between, that active income is going to last a period of time, and then your body's gonna is gonna give out. So, what can you do with that active income that's coming in to create that passive income to then set yourself up? You know, I mean that right there, what you just said about Rajiv, that is one of the most financially savvy. Th actually, no the most financially savvy thing I have ever heard from a tennis player. Um, tennis players aren't known for being the brightest. Some of the, some of the dudes I used to hang out with weren't known to be the brightest dudes in the world. Good dudes, not the brightest, but, but that is very, very savvy. And for anyone, you know, like you or myself um, who's involved in real estate, and I've been in real estate now for over 20 years, what's the one thing we say? Wish I had started sooner. Wish I had started buying sooner. Um, yep. I mean, right, right here where I live in Northeast Florida, I can drive you by 50 properties that I've looked at, considered making an offer on, considered buying for whatever reason, didn't. And, uh, you know, today I'm thinking, wow, I'm in a solid place today. Look where I could be if. Right. You know, so, so I'm uh, like, you know, right now I'm very, I'm very active with what I'm trying to do in real estate. Yeah. And my dream, you know, around my facility is a lot of vacant land. My dream was to, to build Wimbledon Village. Uh, and build a community around the game, right? You know, I feel, uh, and we're getting away from tennis now, but I feel that, you know, black and brown communities often sit and wait for Walmart or Whole Foods to come and show up and like sort of create the neighborhood around retail. And it never happens, right? It's not enough rooftops, not enough income, not enough buying power, so they never come. So we sit there and lay vacant. And so my idea was to build a neighborhood around tennis, uh, education, the arts, and the things that people do every day, right? When I, when I've, the, the six times I've gone to Wimbledon, you know, I'm just amazed that everyone in that community loves tennis, right? They walk to the club to eat, you know, they may not play because you can't play on the grass, right? Um, they walk to the club to eat. It's sort of a community built around, you can see the all-in club is kind of in the center of it. You've got some retail down in the village, but not a lot, right? You see a lot of pop-up shops during um, you know, Wimbledon, but then the storefronts are vacant during the year and that community continues to thrive. And I, that to me is a model for rebuilding neighborhoods of color is you go to school every day, play some level of sports every day, learn to play the piano, music, flute, whatever it is. Um, and you don't, and shouldn't probably go to the grocery store every day. You should probably go once a week, buy everything you need and then not go again. Right. And so I think that reverse engineering a neighborhood could solve some of the blight. I think that's know, a, I think that's a really that's a really good model. It's creative and it starts with a vision. Um, and and then you have to take action. Yeah. It, it's like it's like with my youth foundation, 
over the last five weeks, I've been teaching this little class to some of our teenage students about real estate and finance and how to, at a very young age, start setting yourself up in, in the real estate business and, and acquiring property and uh, putting yourself and your family in a, in a better position. And these are the steps you can take to acquire in a short period of time, a million dollars in assets, not a million dollar net worth, but a million dollars in assets. And the great part about it is you get other people to, to pay it, pay for it for you. Right, right. So I'm, I'm literally showing them specific properties that I own. That that's what I'm what I'm doing because I want to, I want them to have that vision and I want to plant that seed about about what is possible and how. And I and I told them so. Once you're ready, once you get educated, you come back to me and we'll uh, we'll do some we'll do some real estate together. So now 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 it's on their shoulders to right. uh, to take those next few steps to become become educated, but. But um, I mean, I, I think it's a great vehicle, and I think tennis, tennis is such a great, a great tool to use in, uh, you know, in inner cities, but but in all communities, but certainly um, in the inner cities here in Northeast Florida. So I got, I have a few questions as we wrap up here, um, just sort of quick ones that mm -hmm. uh, you know people who travel in, in tennis, you sort of these things will make sense. So you can answer, you can give me grass or clay. Clay. Auckland or Brisbane? Uh, Auckland. Court 18 or court three? Court, court 18 or court three? Uh, <laughs> court 18. <laughs> Roof open or closed? Open for sure. Miami or Indian Wells? Miami. Team dinner or eat solo? Solo. <laughs> Serve first or receive? Serve. That was my mistake at Wimbledon. I served first in the final. Should have should have deferred. Uh, tie break for the set or win by two. Speaking of Wimbledon. Oh, tie break. Sleep in or early practice? Early. I don't sleep in. Crowd for you or against you? Ooh. <laughs> uh, it reminds me of uh, playing Gustavo Kiert in Brazil in Davis Cup. I don't mind a crowd against me. That that's fun. It's yeah, that that's fun. A crowd against me. Yeah, that that that's fun. I, I can see that with you. Well, man, I appreciate you coming on. Like I said, you're one of my childhood idols, man. I remember, I mean, vividly remember five one in the fifth against Todd Martin. Vividly. Um, and I want to just, man, wish you well. You know, keep keep being an example. I mean, I'm super impressed by your foundation. Um, you know, I, I, I watch you and I, I model a lot of what I do after you. So, um, and you're commentating as well. Now I'm starting to do some of that. So, um, you know, I, I really have, you've been a model to me, although I've never told you that when I've seen you, you've been a model to me, the way you carry yourself. Um, and I just wanted to thank you for coming on, man. And those who didn't know the Mal Washington story, now, you know, uh, one of the best dudes in tennis and, um, you know, really an example that people in my generation and even the current generation, the TFOs of the world, right? Can start to sort of look at your path and learn from it and use it as inspiration and, and maybe reach out for guidance. You know, how often do current players reach out to you? Um, it has happened sporadically over the last couple of years. Not, not often, um, I'm certainly available, but I, I sometimes think that's a maturity thing because guess what? I didn't reach out to players either when, when right. I was out there. I don't, I don't even know if it ever it ever dawned on me to reach out to players, but uh, but hey, let, let me, I appreciate those, appreciate those kind words. And let me just say to you, um, well done to you and everything you're doing 
uh, in the game of tennis, your successes, everything you're doing in your community. I often say, regardless of what I've done or what you've done, there's so much more to do. Okay. And uh, so I, I, I'd like to think my best years in terms of productivity are from now to whenever I'm, whenever I go, I, I feel like I'm, I'm going to be around for like another 48 years. That's my goal. <laughs> so I, I got a, I got a lot of work to you, but Hey, I want to say congratulations to you. Keep up the great work with everything you're doing. I'm impressed. Hey man, thank you. And guys, this has been the tennis.com podcast with Mal Washington. Stay tuned for more. We'll see you next week. Uh, I got to get a Wimbledon prediction before I hit end here. Um, on, on the men's side, let me go with, um, let me go with Djokovic. Um, I think, I, I think he's due to just continue. I think he still has three or four more years left in him of, of grand slam championship tennis. So I, I got to go with Djokovic. Um, hard to go against Ash Barty on the, on the women's side. Yeah, I'm gonna go with Djokovic. You know, it's, I'm not a betting man, but if I was, I wouldn't put my money anywhere else. Right. I don't have that much money to lose. Uh, and on the women's side, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a abstain. It is so open and so even. You got you got to throw out a got to throw out a it. Well, if if I wasn't gonna choose Barty, I, um, Kerber, and a- Angelique Kerber, former champion, big lefty. I mean, that's I just I just threw out Barty because she's the, she's the number one player right now, and it's hard to go against the number one. But if there was gonna be anyone else, Kerber. I can see Kerber. I remember the year Kerber won Wimbledon. The previous year, she had a terrible year. I mean, literally didn't win a match. And then came and won Wimbledon. So she's definitely kept and she, this year hasn't been the greatest either, right? Her, her past results. So she's she's due for one. Um, but I think Ash has been, you know, most consistent. All right. So you're taking Ash. Yep. You're taking Djokovic. Yep. You know what? I'm I'm just to be a contrarian, I'll take Kerber. You're gonna take Kerber. Now those I'll are two names I pick. So you you could have gone with like Pliskova, who who yeah. I think, I've been waiting for her. You know she's had a lot of success. I feel like she's been what two or th- did she ever get up to one in the world? I know she got up to two in the world. She might have got up to one for a few weeks. She might have got up to, she might have got up to one, and I think she should have won the U.S. Open in 2016. Yeah, she against Kerber. She served for the match. And got broke. I was, I was like, oh, that was that. That's the one that got away. My, I, the reason why I didn't pick those two is in coaching Sloan. I've coached against Sabalenka, mm-hmm. and I think she's got a great game. I just don't know if it can hold up for seven matches. Mm. I don't know if Pliskova she held up for like six point nine five matches, right? I don't know if she can hold up against seven. Um, so Ash has proven it. That's inside knowledge I don't have. You coached against them. So that's a little oh, yeah. bit of knowledge I don't have. But I've also coached against Kerber. So while while I was coaching Sloan, she's four and zero against Kerber and literally has never lost more than three games. Right. I'm talking one and one, two and one. I mean, this is, you know, so hard for me to pick Kerber because there's two or three ways you can beat her that are like, for sure. Um, but I think of that group on this year's grass, I would say Ash and Kerber. I don't know the other two have the, I don't know if they have it in the win a full seven, six and a half. Right. Um, but, but, but you know what? Uh, with every player prior to winning a major, guess what we say? Yeah, I don't know if they have it in them. And, yeah. and, what, and, and what we've seen, you know, at, at uh, the last couple of years at Roland Garros, I mean, no one was, was picking them to, 
to win oh. the women's side to win Roland Garros. So, you know, who knows? Maybe maybe it is Pushkin's Pushkin's uh, time or Sabalenka's time. Let me tell you, twenty nineteen. Yeah. Monica Puy played Sweet Attack in the third round of the French. Was up six zero, three zero. Wow. In the third round and lost to her. And then a year later, she goes and plays Sweet Attack. So th there are some champions. I'm like. I don't quite understand that one. She didn't look that good just 12 months ago. I mean, it was like we were we were three months from being in the fourth round. You know what I mean? So there are some 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 champions where you like kind of scratch your head. Like, eh, I don't know about that, but I guess I'm gonna go Kerber. You take Barty, I can go Kerber. We both picked Djokovic. Okay. We'll, well, we'll check in. All right. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't I don't know if Roger has another one in him with Djokovic in the tournament. Uh, so there there you go. Five dollars. Five bucks. I got you. Very good. All right, brother. I appreciate it. you. I'm going to see you soon. All right. Take care, man. All right. Talk to you later.